Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number nine, the book of Revelation, chapter three, continued. As we continue in Revelation chapter three today, we're going to discuss the Believer's Assembly at Philadelphia. But first of all, let's review. The congregation that we examined in our last lesson was the one at Sardis. Now for me, as a pastor and a Bible teacher, this is the one that might trouble me the most of the ones that we have studied so far. That's because the believers there were so self-deceived that they thought they were in excellent stead with God. The responsibility for this dire situation has to start with leadership. As it turns out, you see, their self-satisfaction was the case only from their perspective. The Lord saw them otherwise. Indeed, they had no obvious outward flaws. Unlike some of the other churches, they were not accused of eating meat sacrificed to idols, which, by the way, we ought to know by now, is more or less saying that they ate biblically kosher. They were also not sexually immoral. So what's not to like? I mean, it reminds me of when Moses was talking with God... God says to put his hand into his cloak and to pull it out. It came out full of skin disease. This was the Lord showing Moses that an outward display of piety, uprightness, righteousness is not the same as what the inward spiritual condition might be. A condition that only the Almighty can see. It was the same with the believers at Sardis. And what the Lord saw reflected the opposite of their outward appearance. Well, what was the cause of Sardis' inwardly decaying spiritual condition? It was because they had abandoned God's word that they had at first, making them incomplete. At first, they apparently cherished, they studied the Holy Scriptures, to guide their works and and their deeds. But as time went on, somehow their enthusiasm for activities and man-made doctrines increased at the same time their zeal for God's biblical laws and commandments diminished. They lost sight of the fact that the word of God was a vital anchor for them an anchor and it remains so for us in our time so that we have something solid to measure ourselves against not knowing holy scripture means we cannot know God's will for us and if we do not know God's will then we cannot do God's will James 1, 23-24 Don't deceive yourselves by only hearing what the word says, but do it. 
For whoever hears the word but doesn't do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror, who looks at himself and then goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. James makes two critical points. The first is that knowing God's word is not enough. We must also do it. The second is, we can't know what we should be doing without first knowing God's word. Sardis is an example of what happens when you don't know God's word and instead do a lot of religious activity that you assume must be pleasing to God because it makes you feel so good. Without the scriptures as that mirror to look into, to test if what we're doing comports with God's will, we have no other tangible measuring stick. It is true that the Holy Spirit resides in us as a guide. However, He is but one piece of the puzzle. The all too prevalent Christian viewpoint is that with the Holy Spirit in us, we no longer need Bible knowledge or to obey God's, God's commandments because He replaces it. The thought is that the Holy Spirit will tell us supernaturally Whatever God wants us to know or to do, what is right and what is wrong for us, this is a distortion of what Scripture tells us. Rather, the Holy Spirit can be a teacher who will help us to know how to understand what the Bible tells us and how to apply that in every situation. But make no mistake... The Holy Spirit is not each believer's personally customized Word of God. Nor does He redefine evil and sin person by person. The sin of ignoring God's Word and therefore each doing what was right in his own eyes, well that's far more serious than one might have thought. The divine threat was that the believers' names, which were currently written in the book of life, would be blotted out. It would be removed if they didn't repent and get back to taking the Bible seriously. This is a good time to highlight that the Old Testament was their only Bible at this time. And it was going to remain that way for another century or more. Let's read what John wrote down now about the assembly in Philadelphia. That would be in Revelation chapter 3 starting at verse 7. So if you have a complete Jewish Bible, that's going to be on page 1536. And we're just going to read... Uh, verses 7 through 13. So, Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 through 13. To the angel of the Messianic community in Philadelphia write, Here is the message of the Hakadosh, the true one, 
The one who has the key of David, who, if he opens something, no one else can shut it. If he closes something, no one else can open it. I know what you're doing. Look, I have put in front of you an open door. No one can shut it. I know that you have but little power. Yet you have obeyed my message. You have not disowned me. Here, I will give you some from the synagogue of the adversary, those who call themselves Jews but aren't. On the contrary, they're lying. See, I will cause them to come and prostrate themselves at your feet, and they will know that I have loved you. Because you did obey my message about persevering. I will keep you from the time of trial coming upon the whole world to put the people living on earth to the test. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take away your crown. I will make him who wins the victory a pillar in the temple of my God and he will never leave it. Also, I will write on him the name of my God and the name of my God's city, the new Jerusalem coming down from out of heaven and my own new name. Those who have ears, let them hear what the Spirit is saying to the Messianic communities. Philadelphia was located on a major highway about 25 miles south of Sardis. It was founded by Italus Philadelphus, king of Pergamum, about 200 years earlier. Nothing outstanding about this city during this time is reported, except that it experienced a number of severe earthquakes that may have kept the populace in recovery mode so much of the time that the city couldn't prosper or develop a signature industry. That is probably why in verse 8 God refers to the Philadelphian congregation as having only a little power. It was a minor place. It had very little influence in the region. Scratching out a living was the order of every day. Now the standard opening protocol of the seven letters is used whereby the divine vision being God introduces himself by his characteristics but again gives no name. He describes himself as Hakadosh, the Holy One, the True One, the One who has the key of David who if he opens something no one else can shut it and if he closes something no one else can open it. Now overall This is a new description that has not been used in the Old Testament for any of the persons of the Godhead. In fact, although it is an illusion, this is pretty close to an actual quote from the Tanakh, from the Old Testament. And it's about as close as we're likely to find in the book of Revelation. Beginning with the part of the quote that starts, The one who has the key of David... These words are actually originally found in Isaiah chapter 22. Now in order for us to get a better handle on what this statement meant to the original writer, let's go to Isaiah 22, see where this appears in context. You don't have to go there, you don't have to find it unless you just want to. Isaiah 22, I've got it, I'm just going to read it to you. Verses 15 through 23. Thus says Adonai Elohim Sefaot, 
Go and find that steward, Shevna, administrator of the palace, and ask him, what do you own here? Who gave you the right to cut yourself a tomb here? Why do you get such an eminent tomb? Why are you carving out a resting place for yourself in the rock? Look, strong man, Adonai is about to throw you out. He will grab you, roll you up, and toss you around like a ball in the open country. And there you will die with your fancy chariots, you disgrace to your master's palace. I will remove you from your office, I will snatch you from your post, and when that day comes, I will summon my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiel. I will dress him in your robe, gird him with your sash of office, invest him with your authority. He will be a father to the people living in Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. I will place the key of David's house on his shoulder. No one will shut what he opens, no one will open what he shuts. I will fasten him firmly in place like a peg so that he will become a seat of honor for his clan. So the overall context for this passage is the time when Assyria was terrorizing Judah. Now for reasons of his arrogance, the chief governor of King Hezekiah's palace in Jerusalem was threatened by God with being replaced. The arrogant governor was a fellow named Shevna, and the Lord said he would replace him with Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah. Now the palace governor was a very powerful man. He acted like the king's chief of staff. Just who received an all-important audience with the king was usually decided by that governor. So God says that once he's made Eliakim, the new palace governor, that he would place the key of David's house on his shoulder and no one will shut, and uh, what he opens, no one will shut, uh, will open what he shuts. We have that the key of David's house is referring to the fact that the kings of Judah were still descendants of King David, including the current king, Hezekiah. So this simply means that the governor is in full charge of the palace. He handles many of the king's affairs. No one can countermand his orders. Although in the doing, this is the key, he is at all times subordinate to the king. He does the king's will. This Isaiah passage is not generally regarded as a messianic prophecy. It's about a specific office within King Hezekiah's government. Thus what we have in this same description about Eliakim from Isaiah 22 placed upon the divine vision being um, in Revelation 3.7 is but a description that was used of a mere human, not that of God. In fact, not even of a king. It's really strange. The first part of the description, the Holy One, well, that's a typical one for God the Father, found in the, the Holy Scriptures, and it's also within like that within Jewish literature and liturgy. Nonetheless, as always, most commentators 
instantly insist, oh, this has to be Christ. Yet, this insistence itself creates a real conflict with rather standard Christian theology as it concerns the Trinity. Follow me with this. See, interestingly, the comparison that's usually made is that Eliakim is to be seen as a type of Christ. Therefore, Eliakim is the undisputed governor over the king's palace in the same way that Christ is the undisputed governor over the kingdom of God. And whatever either of them orders to be done, nobody can override. However, if this is the comparison and analogy that John intends, if it is, then we must note that just as Eliakim has been given full authority, he is not autonomous. It is still not his palace. And furthermore, he's subordinate to the one whose palace it is, the king. Therefore, it follows that it would be, if this is the intended analogy, that Yeshua has been given charge over God's palace, God's kingdom, even though God the Father remains the owner of the kingdom, and Yeshua is but the governor under the Father's authority, not his own. And while this does not agree with most Christian doctrine on the structure of the Godhead, making the persons, all the persons of the Godhead co-equal with no one in authority over the, over the other, we once again see John's theology of the Godhead pop up. That the Father, the Holy One, He is the preeminent King. And the Son is His subordinate that rules what the Father owns and has delegated to the Son to rule, but at the Father's pleasure. Since the divine being is not named in this letter, nor in any of the seven letters, neither will we force the issue and name him simply to comply with assumptions and man-made doctrines. Verse 8 says that what God has put before the brethren of Philadelphia, no one can shut. Now clearly this is a play on words of the description, description used back in verse 7. And it means that the Lord has set out a mission and a pathway for the Philadelphian believers. And no one, no human, no spirit being, has the authority to change it or stop it. The usual take on this is that from the Philadelphians' Uh, that, that the Philadelphians' mission is to spread the good news and no one can defeat them from accomplishing that task, even in the face of great persecution. And that is certainly a possibility. However, there is also the possibility that this statement is connected to the next verse that speaks of God sending this congregation some people from the synagogue of Satan People who uh, that are defined as those who say they are Jews but they are not, 
and then they will come and prostrate themselves before the Philadelphian believers because they will learn that God loves these Jewish believers. In other words, these members of the synagogue of Satan are not being sent to harass or test the believers of Philadelphia. Rather, they're being sent to learn an important lesson. It is what God's love truly is. And that these believing Jewish people remain the apple of his eye. Now the synagogue of Satan, that phrase, synagogue of Satan, is, as I see it, a play on words. And by the way, the New Testament contains a number of word plays in it. Since Philadelphia was itself a synagogue of God, and remember, the Lord had nothing negative to say about them, then those who oppose God's work through the body of Christ are called a synagogue of Satan, or in other words, a synagogue of the adversary. And interestingly, the Lord is somehow not only going to cause these adversaries to come to the Philadelphia synagogue, but also they will in time accept God's love, not just for them, but they will also come to understand God's love for the believers of Philadelphia. Now for their part, the Philadelphia believers are to accept these folks. These folks from the synagogue of Satan, as God puts it. And they see them as just part of their divine mission. Now here's the thing that helps us understand this rather odd intention of God. We, first, we must question the nearly universal Christian theology that demands that these pretend Jews or are said not to be Jews are nonetheless really Jews. Let me say that again. This is the typical Christian theological take on this verse. That these are pretend Jews who are said not to be Jews, but they really are Jews. Kind of convoluted, huh? Only as Christian doctrine would have it, they are Jews who Judaize. Therefore, God disqualifies them as Jews and takes away their status as Jews. Now we discussed this in an earlier lesson and I'm not going to repeat it except to say we need to take this verse in its plain sense just as it appears in God's word. These are people who claim they are Jews but they are lying and they're not Jews. That's what it says. What is a person who's not a Jew? A Gentile. That's not so hard, is it? Remember, this scene is taking place in Asia, a Gentile region far away from the Holy Land. These are Gentiles insisting they are Jews just as the passage says they are because Judaism was actually an admired, a very admired religion at this time, adopted by many Gentiles. Further, it is biblically prophetic that Gentiles and Gentile nations would eventually want to attach themselves to Israel and to Israel's God and they would come humbly asking to. 
Isaiah 45, 14. Here's what Adonai says. The earnings of Egypt, the commerce of Ethiopia, and men of stature from Sheva will come over to you and become yours. They will come in chains and follow you. They will prostrate themselves before you. They will pray to you, surely God is with you. There is no other. All other gods are nothing. Zechariah 8.23 Adonai Zevaot says, when that time comes, ten men will take hold, speaking all the languages of the nations. They will grab hold of the cloak of a Jew and say, we want to go with you because we have heard that God is with you. There are several other passages that say essentially the same thing. The part of verse 9 that is so heartwarming for me is when it says of the Jewish believers of Philadelphia, and they will know I have loved you. Even the Old Testament prophets commented that because of God's discipline of His people, Gentile nations will become haughty. They will think that God has abandoned His people. Now, of course, a significant portion of Christianity believes that God has indeed switched his loyalty from Jewish people to Gentile Christians. So here God affirms just how much he continues to love his people. Now verse 10 implies that there may have been an earlier communication with Philadelphia about persevering in the face of these persecutions and troubles they've been facing. Perhaps it only means that believers in general are taught to persevere. It's not really clear. But what is clear is that to persevere means to hang on to the faith and not falter. Hang on to the faith and not falter. It means to stay the course, to tell the truth, to not water down the gospel. It means to keep learning, keep maturing, to keep doing everything in the spirit of love despite the pressures that are going to be applied from local society. And this Philadelphia has accomplished to God's satisfaction and he commends them for it. Now the second half of verse 10 is controversial. Now it's not controversial concerning whether it's correct, but rather about how we're to understand it. It says that because the believers of Philadelphia have persevered, then I will keep you from the time of trial coming upon the whole world to put the people living on earth to the test. Now a standard interpretation of this passage is it's speaking directly of the tribulation period and obliquely of the rapture that is meant to save believers from this tribulation. This may well be so. However, I see it a little bit differently. First of all, the, the words translated as trial and test in this verse from, come from the Greek uh, uh, perazo. And they, these words have to do with the idea of going through an ideal, uh, ideal, ordeal, pardon me, for the purpose of being proved innocent or guilty. 
or being proved worthy or unworthy. The Greek word for tribulation is flipsis. Now one would think that if indeed the Christian concept of the tribulation was what was intended here in Revelation 3.10 of all places, then the word used would be flipsis, not peirasso. Part of what complicates this matter is the phrase people living on the earth. Who are these people living on the earth? David Stern in his commentary on Revelation points out that there are two equivalent Hebrew phrases that may be what's being expressed by the Greek and then translated on to the English. The plain sense of the passage seems then to be referring to all human beings. If that's not what's being expressed here, then it is most difficult to interpret the sense of it. And so a few points of view have come about based on one's end times doctrine. For instance, pre-tribulation rapture adherence, for them this means every person still alive who's not a believer because all believers will have been raptured away to safety in heaven. Others think it means that believers will be sealed by God so they're not subjected to his worldwide wrath. But we must also consider that this had a direct meaning to those believers of Philadelphia in their era. Because you see, persecutions under Nero had already happened. And while they were localized, nonetheless they were devastating on believers. The persecutions under Domitian, who was the current Roman emperor, were even more widespread. And in time, the persecutions other, uh, under other Roman emperors would grow even more intense. So from John's perspective, and from the Philadelphians' perspective, this likely was a warning of what was coming accompanied with an assurance that God would protect them in some unnamed way from the worst of those persecutions. I concede that in addition to referring to the time of John and soon thereafter, it could also be referring to the end times that is still ahead of us. And we need to keep that in mind in our time and beyond. Yet there is not enough evidence for us to come to a firm conclusion from what's written here. Verse 11 makes the idea that this is meant to refer to something immediately ahead for the Philadelphian congregation more likely. Now that's not to preclude something later as well. Because the Bible proves that it is usual for prophecy to happen more than once but in different ages. That is, the divine being says, I am coming soon. Soon did not mean 2,000 years or more to the people who heard and read this letter. Soon meant imminent to John, to Paul, and no doubt to all the good folks of Philadelphia. Were the believers of Philadelphia eventually protected from some of the savagery of the Romans? There's no evidence either way. It seems convincing enough to speak about. Therefore, 
it is far more likely that this divine protection that's being offered was not physical. It was spiritual. It is that even if the Philadelphians were to lose their physical lives, their far more important spiritual lives were going to be held safe by God. And it is guaranteed. Here is what Yeshua said about this when teaching his disciples perhaps as much as 60 years prior to John writing the book of Revelation. In Luke 12, 22 through 32, we read this. To his Talmudim, his disciples, Yeshua said, Because of this I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. For life is more than food, the body is more than clothing. Think about the ravens. They neither plant nor harvest. They have neither storerooms nor barns. But God feeds them. You are worth much more than birds. Can any of you by worrying add an hour to his life? If you can't do a little thing like that, why worry about the rest? Think about the wild irises and how they grow. They neither work nor spin thread. Yet I tell you, not even Shlomo and Solomon in all of his glory was clothed as beautifully as one of these. If this is how God clothes grass, which is alive in the field today and thrown into the oven tomorrow, how much more he'll clothe you? Oh, what little trust you have. In other words, don't strive after what you'll eat and what you'll drink. Don't be anxious. For all the pagan nations in the world set their hearts on these things. Your father knows that you need them too. Rather seek his kingdom. All these things will be given to you as well. Have no fear, little, little flock. For your father has resolved to give you the kingdom. In the book of John, Christ prayed this to his father. John 17, 11 through 15. Now I'm no longer in the world. They're in the world, but I am coming to you. Holy Father, guard them by the power of your name, which you have given to me, so that they may be one, just as we are. When I was with them, I guarded them by the power of your name, which you have given to me. Yes, I kept watch over them, and not one of them was destroyed, except the one meant for destruction so that the Tanakh might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you. And I say these things while I am still in the world, so that they may have my joy made complete in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they do not belong to the world, just as I myself do not belong to the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to protect them from the evil one. See, while there have been instances that God bodily rescued his people, more often than not, he gave his people the endurance and the faith to suffer through the most terrible of times. And this is why I have serious doubts 
that the statements in the letter to the Philadelphians meant to imply that God was going to bodily rescue them from persecution. And it's why I have those same serious doubts that we're going to all be raptured to heaven prior to tremendous persecution being inflicted upon the world by the Antichrist. And we're going to get into all that with much more depth later on in Revelation. But suffice it to say, it would break God's biblical pattern to whisk his worshippers away to avoid persecution of other human beings upon us. Rather, the goal has always been to strengthen his worshippers to endure as an example to those of weaker faith, even to those who don't yet believe. Well, the end of verse 11 says that the importance of hanging on to the faith that they already have is so they will receive their crown. See, the crown for believers is symbolic of being admitted into the kingdom of God. But then verse 12 speaks of those who win the victory being made a pillar in the temple of God. Now, winning the victory means to keep the faith that they have. And while no doubt the mention of pillars in the temple is a metaphor, perhaps figurative, the image this would conjure up in the minds of Jews at that time is quite different than how Gentile Christians of today would think of it. Indeed, there were two well-known pillars of the temple, destroyed probably two decades earlier by the Romans, and they were given names. Boaz and Yaquim. Boaz means strength. Yaquim means to establish. Now, rabbis differ on exactly what these words are meaning to communicate. However, the two pillars at the entrance to the temple were ornate and they were monumental in size. They were the prominent features that visitors would first notice. No matter, since Revelation is primarily a Jew writing mainly to other Jews, these two pillars are what is being referred to. And whatever they symbolized to Jews in that era is the crux of the statement about believers being made pillars, spiritual pillars of God's temple. Well, next in verse 12, man, there's an amazing amount of information given in only a few words. There we read, also I will write on him the name of my God and the name of my God's city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from my God and my own new name. Now this no doubt is far future to the era of the believers of Philadelphia, although they thought it was not very far off. See, think about their situation. For them... A new Jerusalem, well, that was their great hope. The former Jerusalem and its temple and its temple were destroyed by Rome about 20 years earlier. Jerusalem and the temple were the national and the spiritual symbols of the Jewish people, and they were greatly missed. 
So when the words of this letter say to them, Oh, a new Jerusalem is coming down out of heaven. I'm certain, I'm certain of it that most, if not all, the Jewish believers took this as meaning that Jerusalem and the temple would soon be rebuilt at the direction of Yehovah. I mean, this is great news. Now, history shows us this was not the case. And in fact, this event is still future to us. In fact, the final few chapters of Ezekiel speak of when this prophecy comes about. Well, when the passage speaks of the divine being writing the name of God and also the name of God's city, this new Jerusalem, on the believer, we need to think less in terms of names like Bob or Chris or Dorothy and more in terms of name in the sense of reputation and character and identity. This was the primary sense of the word name in this and in earlier eras, even though today that's a purely secondary sense of the, of, of the meaning of the word. So what we have is God identifying with the believer and the believer with God, as well as the new Jerusalem identifying with the believer and the believer with the new Jerusalem. We even have the divine being saying he's going to receive a new name. Now think about that. God is saying he is going to have a new name. Whoa. Now this is primarily meant in the sense of reputation. However, a new reputation can also reflect a new given name as given names in ancient times were meant to reflect or inspire a certain reputation. Later on in Revelation, we are going to read of a new heaven and new earth being created as well as a new city of Jerusalem descending from heaven. In Revelation 21, 1 and 2, I'll give you a little preview. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the old heaven and the old earth had passed away and the sea was no longer there. Also I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. Now what's also exciting is when we read about this new Jerusalem getting a new name. We actually find that in Ezekiel 48. And after this chapter in Ezekiel explaining about the territory that the tribes of Israel will receive after the millennial kingdom of Christ, the final words of the book of Ezekiel, the final words, Ezekiel 48 verse 35 says this, The perimeter of the city will be just under six miles long. And from that day on, the name of the city will be Adonai Shema. Adonai is there. That will be the new name. It will not be called Jerusalem anymore. It will be called Adonai Shema. So indeed we see Ezekiel writing almost 700 years earlier back up what we just read here in Revelation 3.12 or perhaps John is alluding to Ezekiel 
in this dramatic statement. And oh, by the way, this is really fun. When we look at the original Hebrew in Ezekiel, the name of the city is not Adonai Shema, as the complete Jewish Bible has it. It is Yehovah Shema. That is, God's formal name is used. And so it means Yehovah is there. And Yehovah is either the name for the totality or the God of the Godhead, or it's the exclusive name of the Father. I think the weight of evidence is that Yehovah is the Father's name, and the name for the totality of the Godhead is Elohim, and sometimes Yah. But reasonable people can differ over this. Well, I'm going to close for today with this thought. The issue of the issue of identification is everything for human beings. And it's especially so for believers. Over and over, Old and New Testaments, we are told to identify with the God of Israel if we want deliverance and redemption. Even a mixed multitude from Egypt joined Israel because they opted for that identification with Jehovah. Now, just as we see some churches in John's era battling to keep that identification with God and with Christ, and some failing, so it is today. Man-made religions, man-made religious systems will always attack authentic believers who hold fast to God and Christ because those systems are false and they cannot hold up to testing. This is why God always finds himself working with remnants, never with the mainstream. Later in Revelation, we will read about God judging all of these false religious systems of the world that billions of people follow in full confidence, believing them to be safe and correct. I'm sorry to say that much of the Christian church today falls within that category. As too many have given up the word and authority of God in exchange for an easier, cheaper, more congenial religion consisting of a few bumper sticker slogans, some humorous sermons, and a pious looking exterior. We have been reading in these letters just what identification with God looks like and what it does not. Which is why every letter ends with the strong admonition, those who have ears, let them hear what the Spirit is saying to the Messianic communities. Next week we will talk about the seventh and final letter to Laodicea.